uh, over in verse, uh, uh, verse 3, he said that, that we ought to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And his reason was in verse 4, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were written about, or that sometimes the English word can come through as designated, for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality so that God's grace becomes do whatever you please and you'll still go to heaven, don't worry about it, and who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is, they want his salvation. They do not want his salvation from sin in their life. They want his forgiveness. They do not want his lordship over them. And so that's been where we've been for a lot of the weeks, has been looking at the, as he goes on from verse 5 through to verse uh, 19 about it is, uh, talking about the danger of false teachers, the danger that they're always almost right. They're, they're, they're not, they, don't, they don't call themselves the, the, the first uh, false teaching church of Underwood. They don't have that on their labels. You have to be able to look underneath the labels and understand what is going on. And so we've been urged to compel, to think critically, to uh, uh, hold back our our lusts and the desires of our flesh as we seek to obey what Jude is saying. However, last week and this week, we get to this part of uh, really verse 20 onwards uh, about how we are kept by the Lord God. We looked last week particularly at how a contender, how somebody seeking to contend for the faith also does due diligence for their own soul. How we ought to, while we are contending for the faith in general, while we are reaching out to other people and against their falsehood, in general, yet very specifically and inwardly, we need to be those who are keeping ourselves in these ordinary means of grace. So look at verse 20. He said, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. We said that's very corporate. That is uh, language of the edification in the, in the presence of a local church. Um, uh, that you must be built up in the most holy faith. Our holy faith is a communal faith. There is no such thing as Christianity faithful to God outside of the context of a local church. And praying in the Holy Spirit, we said, was not a charismatic, uh, gifted uh, speaking in tongues prayer. That praying in the Holy Spirit is simply praying according to the will and words of the Holy Spirit as we find it in the Bible. Take up your Bible, the sword of the Spirit, and pray at all times, Paul tells us in Ephesians. We go on, he says, uh, uh, pray in the Spirit. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, which means to walk according to the commandments of God. And he says, of course, that we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's his second coming. That's that we're waiting for the day that he appears and finishes off all the mercy that he has to pour out on his people. So when that, that was, that was uh, how we ought to be doing certain things to keep ourselves. But now he turns the, uh, uh, the question towards what uh, our duty towards other people in the keeping of each other. So under the broader question tonight of, of how does God keep me? How does God keep me in the faith? Because I was told from verse one that as somebody who is a saint, somebody who is called to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, somebody who is beloved by God the Father, I've been told in verse one that I will be kept for Jesus Christ. That is that God keeps us as a, as a wedding gift, as a preserved bride to gift to his son on that final day when all of heaven and earth is recreated. The final unblemished, uh, completed, consummated bride is given to her husband, Jesus Christ. We're kept for God, and the question is how? How are we kept for God? And automatically, one of the, the answers that comes out to us in verse 22 is that you are kept by other people in your congregation. 
other Christians are God's mean of keeping us. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching already. I'm just trying to give a recap before we read it. And then, of course, he's going to show us from verse 24 onwards that God himself, by the power and the saving majesty of the Lord Jesus, the highest authority that there is, he keeps us through his authority. So let's look at verse 22 onwards, and I will read it. I'll be reading from the ESV. The word of God says this, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And everybody said... Amen. What an amazing doxology. Of course, one of the favorites that people often have, the great doxology of Jude. Well, you see that it's very much on theme. In fact, if you remember over the last three evening series that we've done in the book of James and in the book of 1 John before that, you'll remember that both of them ended in their fifth chapter with an exhortation to look out for other Christians. The book was filled with exhortations and commandments and how you need to be a faithful Christian and the rest. And they both ended, 1 John 5 ends with him telling us how to pray for people, for brothers that are in sin, although he is aware that there is such a thing as the sin that leads to death, which would be, in Jude's language, apostasy. Jude, uh, uh, rather, James also tells us at the last part of, of his chapter 5 is, uh, that, that we should be those who are seeking to uh, save souls from death if we see a brother wandering. And also, Jude does the same thing. The, the assumption, the common theme is that all those who are faithful, all those who are seeking to be faithful and who are mature, all of those types of Christians will be the, the kind who seeks to save other people and will turn their efforts from themselves who are faithfully contending. And maybe you find yourself here. You've been hearing the book of Jude and, and you would by no means say you're doing it perfectly, but you can say with a good conscience that, that you're striving to remain firm in the faith. You're not afraid of doctrine. You're not embarrassed about standing for doctrine. You love the word of God. You stand on the word of God. You seek to love the Lord God and, and persevere in with other saints in the walk of faith. You, you feel like God is, is blessing you and giving you grace in leading you that way. Now, the question is, are you also looking to people around you and bringing them along with you? It's a faithless soldier who, who simply sets himself a goal of getting to the other side of the minefield or getting through the trench alone and caring nothing for the other people around him. That's not how soldiers are trained. Soldiers, family, they are trained in order to be one together and help one another across the line that they would seek to go over. C.T. Studd, he was a, a cricket batsman in the 1800s. He was a very wealthy guy because they won the Ashes. Uh, and he uh, was saved in his cricket career and felt compelled uh, along with other guys from Cambridge, they became known as the Cambridge Seven, these seven uh, very intelligent guys who, who took on the call of the missionary work and went overseas and labored for God. And he was, he was considered crazy that he would do that. He would waste his cricketing career, waste all of his money and the like. There's a, a funny story about how much money he has when he lands in China, I believe it was, and when his, his prospective wife, who had given up everything to become a missionary and was dirt poor, finds out how much money he had. She immediately told him to give it all away because, uh, and he did, because that's what you do when you want a wife. Anyway, uh, C.T. Studd, this, this zealous missionary, he said, 
He said his people were telling him, why don't you stay? Why don't you stay here? Think of all the good that can be done in England. Why would you leave? Why would you go? Isn't it, doesn't God have great prospects for us in England? And he, told, he, he wrote down and said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He's the same one who would write, there's only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He had the the kind of contending mentality that Jude would have us have, caring about his own soul, remaining fast in the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and looking around him to see who else needs to be saved. In Jude's language tonight, we see three kinds of people that we need to be focusing on who would call themselves Christians. This is not not initially or explicitly evangelism. This is more in-house evangelism. This is how to keep your other brothers and sisters saved. You know, look at that, three types of people, and uh, the doubters, the deserters, and the defectors, and then we are going to move on to that last doxology and just look at that briefly. <clears throat> so first of all, God keeps contenders, it's you and me if we're faithful to Jude's command, he keeps us through other contenders. As we look at these, the doubters, the deserters, and the defectors, I want you to think of them as, as, as types of people in a medieval war. Picture yourself sitting there maybe, maybe in the 1500s, the 1300s, the 900s, something back then. You've got gentlemen lined up on either side of the battlefield and there's no guns, there's no snipers, there's none of this technological warfare. It's men in the mud with swords and shields. And you can imagine as, as each army is lining up and one of them is your army and the other is the enemy seeking to invade, something like that. They're going to come, they're going to take your family, they're going to burn down your village if they succeed. You can imagine three types of people who, who as a faithful commander, you might seek to, to bolster. You might need to keep an eye out on under your watch. There would be those who, who before the fighting starts, are scared. They are the doubters. That's who we're going to hear about tonight. They're the people who are, who are afraid. They, they want to run away. They are not sure they want to be here. They are, they are shaking in their boots. They're the doubters. Secondly, then, you have the deserters. And that's once the the fighting has started and you've started charging, they fall back, they find an excuse to start to run away. They're the deserters. And thirdly, there's the defectors, the guys who once the fighting starts, they they can see the enemy, they can see the other king, they see the flying flags, and they think that side actually looks a lot more powerful, a lot more noble, a lot more worthwhile of my time. And so they actually move to the other side and start fighting against you. These are the three people we have to deal with in Jude's language. The doubters the deserters, and the defectors. Look first at the doubters in verse 22. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. That's, that's the whole verse. These are the people who are, who are scared, who are fearful of what the false teachers are saying. These are the people who, who have been maybe, maybe giving way to what they've been hearing the false teachers teaching. They hear what they're saying and, and gee, they're just not sure that they would be able to, to mount an apologetical argument against that. They're a bit nervous by the atheist argument, by the prosperity gospel argument, by the Unitarian anti-Trinitarian argument, by, by all sorts of things. They're, they're shaking their boots. They're not super confident that they could uh, mount a defense against that. They're afraid. Maybe they, they hear of the, as Judas said, and it's an easy sell. He keeps on saying how, how in the false teaching camp, you're always allowed to do whatever you want with your flesh. Sometimes they're super legalistic. Other times, and more attractively, it's the crowd that just says you can do whatever you want. Sexually, physically, it doesn't matter. And so there's, there's some people, there's doubters who are, who are feeling tempted by that. 
Maybe it's people who have been through something like a church split because of heresy, or people who have had something to do with fighting false teachers in the past, and they're wounded. They have sort of a spiritual version of PTSD. They know what it's like to sit under a pastor's preaching and then see them fall away. They know what it's like to live and do mission and evangelism with a friend and then see them reject the core doctrines of the faith. Some people are, uh, have, have seen this sort of thing firsthand and it is heartbreaking. Sometimes the doubters are just because we're young. Young people have, have, uh, uh, have a while to go in terms of certainty and steadfastness. Often it's the, somewhere maybe the, the teenagers to young adults who, who have not, you know, James himself will tell us that character steadfastness comes through trials. Trials by nature take time, and the more you live, the more trials you have, the more steadfastness there is to be had. And so younger people can often be those who are the doubters. They're unsure. They've got so many friends who, who believe other things. They're the, they haven't been through the decades of church life. They haven't been through the, the years of walking with Jesus. They have a few more reasons to doubt, so they think. The fleeting pleasures of sin become less tempting over time for anybody that truly has the Holy Spirit. And so also, again, younger Christians can, have a, can, ha, can believe the lie that the sinful lifestyle will be more pleasurable. And yet, we're told by Jude to have mercy. Don't lambast them. Don't jump down on top of them and be ashamed of them and cut them out of your, you know, your community and your little fellowship group because they're one of those who doubt. We don't be like that. We love and we have mercy on them because we know Every single one of us knows that if we are mature in Christ and maturing, then at some points in our past, we have come through periods of doubt because other Christians came around us and encouraged us. If you disagree with that, you're not a mature Christian. If you think that your entire life has just been you and your book, you and your single mate, or just you alone and the Holy Spirit, and that's how you got to where you are, that just means nothing. You're obviously not very far along at all. That's not God's ordained means. He uses the body. He uses the other people. You're not mature if you haven't and can't remember at some point in your life other Christians helping you along. And so the encouragement is that we ought to be merciful on those who are doubting because the uh, uh, jumping at them, yelling at them, will not help them. So have mercy, Jude says. Have mercy on the doubters. But you get to the next group at uh, verse 23. And these are the people that you automatically want to help even less. These in the battle of spiritual warfare, these in the heat of the fight, these are the ones who are deserting. While you're willing to to live and fight and die for king and country, they're the ones turning around and hightailing out of there. They're willing for you to take the heat, you to take the enemy arrows, you to take the fighting. They're going to go run to safety. These are the deserters. Look at verse 23. He says, others... Save by snatching them out of the fire. It's as if these people have, 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 have gotten themselves to the very brink of hell. It's like their, their feet and the, the bottom parts of their pants are, are, are singed. They've gotten so close to seeing themselves apostatized that, that we're probably tempted to get a little bit hyper-Calvinistic. This isn't exclusive to reform people. I hear it all across the, 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 all across the board, but all of us can get a little bit too hyper-Calvinistic. And we just said, you think I'm saying a Mary Poppins line when I say that? Not hyper-Calvinistic, fragilistic, expialidocious. I just heard it in my head. I thought, sounds dumb. Let's not be hyper-Calvinistic. <clears throat> Don't watch Mary Poppins. It's demonic. 
Uh, so, uh, and we can think, we can think theologically and try and be smarter than Jude. We excuse ourselves from a biblical command because we know biblical doctrine. That's never a good way to be. We say we don't really need to snatch people from the fire. God's elect will always persevere. Friends, the elect persevere by means of us snatching one another when we need it. We can think that anybody who is truly regenerate will not bow down to false idols and see themselves apostatized. Yes, but the regenerate people are unified by that same Holy Spirit so that we persevere one another. We ought not to to think that our doctrine excuses us from obedience. He says there is such a thing as true Christians, brothers and sisters, who, who in the false teaching coming around, when the temptation towards sin is, is being, is being uh, on full display, when their friends have left, when the past is apostatized, there's every temptation to go and they start to slip. They visit a few of the services. They, they stay friends with those people who are, who are tempting them down the wrong way. They're reading the books just to check it all out. And then they start to walk down the wrong path so that you can smell the hellfire in their clothes. And Jude says, save them, snatch them, grab them as one who is about to leap in front of a car as somebody who doesn't realize that they're dangling over a fire and about to fall in you snatch them out of there don't do it politely do it mercifully lovingly intentionally zealously pull your friends back these are the deserters those who have run away a good commander would not simply shoot in the back He would grab him. He would tell him the spirit that is within him. He would say like Paul that we have not received the spirit of timidity and of fear through the spirit of of slavery, but we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, get to the front line and bear your sword, soldier. This is what Jude wants us to do. Be that kind of strengthening, spine-stealing kind of people for each other. Where people are dropping away, they're being influenced by the demonic teaching, they're they're being convinced in certain lifestyles. Like the angels who went into the town for Lot, like like good missionary brothers and sisters, they went into Lot's neighborhood, they knocked on his door, they saved him from a horrible situation, they told him, get out of here. The angels and Lot are sort of a, a physical example of what Paul tells us elsewhere in his epistles. He says, Flee these kinds of things, these sins, for on account of them, the wrath of God is coming. And so the angels do the same thing for Lot. Flee Sodom. Get out of here. Leave the lifestyle. Get a new postcode. Get the first bus out of town. There is sulfur coming down. So it is. Some of you guys have friends. Some of you are these friends. Some of you are these people who are who are maybe ducking into church every now and then. Maybe you're regular, but you're slipping. Maybe you have committed yourself and you've done everything except for confess it to the people around you, but you are in danger. And what your friends need to do and others around us, what you need to do is grab those people and tell them with all of the love within you that you care for their soul. Tell them you've been praying for them. Tell them that you'll pray with them, that you'll catch up every week as often as needed, that you'll drive them to church if that is what is needed, but you will be the one to snatch them out of the fire. This language is actually given to us from the book of Zechariah. Can you go to Zechariah chapter 3? Zechariah chapter 3 and it'll be the first four verses of that prophecy.
keep in mind that the Hebrew name for Joshua was Jesus' name. The Hebrew name for Joshua is Yehoshua, which into the Greek went as, as Jesus. Uh, through, uh, the, so the, in the English, we call it Jesus, but it's the same name, Joshua, here. Keep that in mind as I read verse 1. This is a vision that Zechariah was having. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Let's just give it the other English name, Jesus, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Here is Joshua the high priest being accused by Satan before the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Obviously, this is where Jude is getting his language from. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire. Have, have you ever seen your kid, maybe you're having marshmallows and they, and they throw in, it wasn't a stick, it was, it was something personal to, your, to you. I don't know, one of those dumb Bluetooth uh, uh, selfie sticks. They should burn anyway. But they throw something that they thought was a stick in. They take your phone, they take your keys, they just throw it in the fire. Again, none of you have my children. Happens all the time. When that happens, you, you have to, you start doing mathematics in your head and physics and, and chemistry and trying to figure out the rate of combustion for that versus your hand versus how much it would just cost to replace versus inconvenience costs. And by the time I've thought about any of that, my hand's already in the coals and I'm trying to pluck something out. That's, like, that's a brand in the fire, something that was about to combust that has been plucked out. The angel of the Lord says of Joshua the high priest, this is one plucked, a brand from the burning. Look at verse 4. Uh, sorry, verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you in pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. That is priestly garments. That's why he's wearing a turban. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you see what's happening in this picture? Zechariah is showing to us what Jude is clearly referring to. When Jude tells us, pluck people from the fire, he means, he means what, what the angel of the Lord meant when he said, this man is plucked from the fire. And then he gives us a second analogy and says, he's, he's clothed with his iniquity. Take his iniquity off him, put onto him the righteous vestments, the pure clothing, the righteousness that enables us to stand before a holy God. Put those onto him and he will be able to stand. This means that some of us have friends, some of us are these people, who are, who are drifting and almost falling into the pit of hell. And we are told by Jude, pluck them from the fire by placing the righteousness of Christ upon them through the preached gospel, demanding faith of them. And we might want to say, but aren't they Christians? Isn't that why we call them a brother? Isn't that why this passage applies to them? Because they're a professing Christian? Yes, and when did we believe that Christians need to stop hearing and believing the gospel? This is how, if you have a friend that is, that is faltering, that is drifting, that is sliding, if it's you, then what you need to be reminded of is that as somebody fit and willingly and rightly ready to burn for your sin, God has plucked you out. He's given to you mercy, and in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, there is merit to clothe you and forgive you so that you have righteousness where you were formerly clothed in, pure, in impure, filthy garments. The belief of that is what brings you back from the fire. Not, not just, a, not just a, a persistent friend, 
Not just lots of phone calls, not just lots of Bible studies, but knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel, believing the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel. That's what plucks you out of the fire. So to others, have mercy and snatch them from the fire. The next one we see, though, the next one is the defector. These are the most dangerous. You'll see in Jude, go back to Jude with me if you haven't already. He says at the second half of verse 23, to others, show mercy with fear. It's like the first one. Show mercy, this time, with fear, with a lot of careful treading. This is not just mercy. This is not just open-handed, open-armed, open-doored hospitality. This is not just mercy. It's mercy tempered with fear, tempered with care, because this person is not merely doubting. They are defecting. They have stripped off the king's colors. They have thrown the flag down. They have picked up the enemy's flag and are running bow in hand, sword in hand, javelin in hand at you and at your king and at your countrymen. They are more dangerous than the doubters. They are defectors. They are now batting for the other team. So look, uh, uh, these, these are the people who have defected to the other side. They, they, if, if we think in our real, real terms, these are the people who have who sort of left your church, left sound doctrine, and start, start actually uh, 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 believing and sharing and proselytizing for the false cause. They're promoting heresy. They're rejecting sound doctrine. They're openly living in sin. The further they go, the less hope there is for them. This is a hard truth. The further people go down this path, away from the truth they once held, into error and sin, the less hope there is for them. But we need to be careful and we need to believe with hope and with fear, have mercy with fear that they are not altogether gone yet. This is why he says, to others have mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. On the same kind of pattern, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, He says that there are people who are opponents of the truth. These are people who are arguing against the truth. They are debating against sound doctrine. They are denying core fundamentals of the faith. These are opponents of the truth. They're not just in error. They're not just just a Presbyterian, okay? These guys are dead wrong. These are heretics. Not Not just a different denomination. These are opponents of the truth. Yet look at what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 that the man of God must be able to be correcting his opponents with gentleness. These are people promoting false doctrine because they're his opponents. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is such a, such a thin line, such a gray area that we just can't easily pick and categorize people. There are Christians who are taken by the devil for a time to do his will, who become opponents to the truth. And to even them, we must correct. We do correct them. We show them the mercy of correcting their errors, and yet with mercy, with that gentleness, hoping against hope that they will believe again the truth that they had once confessed and that they will return to the truth. There is such a thing as sealing their fate forever, but we should pray and hope that it is rare. And so 
he says, do so. Have mercy on them, but with fear. Know that God is God. If he judges them, we do not question his justice. We fear God. If he strikes them down as part of a judgment, we do not question his justice. And if they persist, we keep ourselves clean. This is the problem with the defector. We try and win them back, but we do not forget that they seek to kill you. Christians, uh, Jesus said, must be, must be as cunning as wolves, but as pure as doves. Innocent. Don't, don't slander. Don't play the politics. Don't lie. Don't sin. But don't be naive and foolish. Wow, how, how silly Christians can get. We just assume that no one would be out to undermine the teaching ministry of a church. No one would be out to intentionally spread sinful lifestyles. Everybody's just trying to do the best that they can. That's folly. People cannot lead a church. People cannot, cannot remain as faithful contenders if you think that's the case. You need to be aware that while we have mercy, we are praying for all, we're evangelizing to all, seeking to preserve all, there are people who, while you seek their benefit, their eternal good and the glory of God, there is a point you have to give up the mission because they seek your life and they seek the life of those around you. We get into it because, because we love their soul and want to save them. We pursue them because we want to glorify God, but at some point we realize they don't care about their souls and you might even recognize that your soul becomes to be endangered. You're starting to believe what they're saying. You're starting to, to be tempted by the sins that they're putting forward. We must be careful. If he, uh, sorry, Galatians 6 says this. This is Paul. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Mature Christians, those who are spiritual, should always be seeking to be bringing other less mature, doubting, uh, deserting Christians back to the fray, back to the fold. We must be seeking to bring them back, but be careful because that always comes with risk and with temptation. If you are ignoring verse 17 through 21, in other words, look at Jude, verse 17 through 21, where we're told, remember the apostles' predictions of false teachers, remember what they are like, they're devoid of the spirit, etc. Keep yourselves in the love of God, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're ignoring that, then you must not seek in proud and pomp to go and obey verse 22. Verse 22 and 23 are for those who have also obeyed verse 20, 17 through 21. You're keeping yourself, and so you are fit for keeping others, pursuing others. It's like on the, like on the plane. You know, we're all briefed with that, if any of us have flown before. Um, if anybody has flown, you've seen the, the safety measures that they tell you, no matter how much you love the kid next to you, no matter how much you love granny sitting next to you, if the plane is in danger and the oxygen mask falls, Put yours own on first. It's the fool who thinks. Without oxygen, poison running through the air, no oxygen to my brain, I'm going to be able to help other people around me. You, it is not selfishness. It is wisdom to put that mask on first and so then help others. Even in the medical field and the emergency services, they're told that there is, a, there is a point to which you have to be careful with certain PPE. You don't just run right in and touch whatever body fluids, whatever dangers there are, or you become a greater burden because you yourselves also are drawn away and damaged. And it's in that vein that Jude has been saying in verse 23, hate even the garment stained by the flesh. It's a pretty gross picture. 
They, they, they would have the, it's basically a, a word for underwear. The, the cloak or maybe it would be pants or just a shirt or a, or a whole body thing. Uh, the thing that they wear most close to their body. Underneath their outward, their outward vestments would be the, the garment that is close to the flesh. And he's saying that, that that can be with people who just don't have tremendous hygiene. That can be stained in the worst way possible with human waste. What he's saying is this. There are some things which are so close to you, you don't want to let them go. But if they are defiled and they are disgusting and they are impure, you have to throw them away. It'd be better to get out of there naked than not at all. And so he's saying with those people that we love, that we're having mercy on, that we want to bring back, we must do so. We must have that mercy with the fear. Don't think you're more gracious than God. Don't think you're more sovereign in your grace and your evangelism than God's Holy Spirit who they have spurned. And yet we pray. And we press on. How does God keep us? We've seen so far that we keep ourselves in certain ways, that we keep one another in certain ways. And now we go to verse 24 onwards, which tells us how God keeps us. But I want to I introduce to you this principle, this, this relationship between sin and the Christian and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Chalmers was an author uh, many hundred years ago. Uh, he, was, he was a Puritan, and he wrote this book that was called The, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He asked the question, if, uh, if you've got all your smartest scientists in a room and, and the medical students into a room in the, in the fanciful laboratory, and you got them together, and you told them and asked them, there is a, there is a, uh, a beaker filled with air filled with oxygen, and it's sitting on the lab table, and your job, students, bright minds, is to remove all of the air out of that beaker. What would they do? How many of them would, would seek to try and build some kind of uh, a very intelligent, very intricate vacuum-creating machine that would also bolster the glass so that it wouldn't implode on itself as all of the air is sucked out? What would you do? How do you remove the air from a beaker? And Thomas Chalmers says very, very simply, you pour water in. The one way, the most effective way to expel something from a place is to put something new in. Now, here's his analogy. The Christian heart is the beaker and sin is the air. When a Christian has this, this overwhelming desire and lust and passion for sin and patterns of life where you just can't seek to break free, what you need to do is not try to create a vacuum into which at the smallest crack more sin will flow. What you need to do is pour into your heart a new affection that is stirred for the Lord Jesus Christ and sin will have nowhere to live. The expulsive power of a new affection. There's a story that I heard through a, a sermon one time, and uh, they, he told the story of, of sirens. You all know the very factual, true stories of the pirates who would go out into dark corners of the Caribbean, and, and as they're going through uh, very scary waters that they, are, that they are navigating, they would hear the voices of the sirens. They're like the R-rated mermaids. They're the mermaids who, who are so beautiful to these men that have not seen women in a long time. And, and, and these, these mermaids have this beautiful voice that just, that just set men into a lull and into a, into a state of being hypnotized so that they come over to the edge of a boat and they, and they throw off their weapons and they jump on in to be with the most beautiful women in the most beautiful voices that lull them into a sense of serenity. And there the sirens gash their throats and eat the men alive drag them down into the bottom of the ocean. The analogy goes that, 
There's the story where the pirates were on board and a ship captain knew that they were going to go through the waters where the sirens were and there was, there was men who, who, had, who, who, as they were going through, were, 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 were trying to strap themselves down with ropes onto the boards. But what was happening is the sirens were singing. They would just chew through the rope. They would callous their hands. They would be bleeding all over the place. They would do whatever they could, self-destruct if necessary, to get to the water and be destroyed by those beautiful singing sirens. So it is with sin. And the captain thought that, that he had an idea that they wouldn't strap themselves down. They wouldn't play, lock themselves down into the, the ship's bottom. They wouldn't try and shove their fingers in their ears. None of that worked. Because what needs to happen for, an, for a passion to be expelled is a new affection brought in. So they brought up the deckhands and the, and the kitchen uh, uh, Celtic singers that they had had on them with the ship and they got them to sing as loudly as they possibly could the most beautiful songs of their homeland that drowned out the voices of the sirens and they made it through safely. This is the picture that each of us are tempted by the alluring sin and we know it's self-destructive. And there are men on the boat who are, who are the doubters. They, they, want, they want to go after the sirens. They, they don't want to die, but they, they're, they're feeling, they're feeling a, a, a passionate and lustful towards those sins. And there's others who are, who are diving full length. And there are others who, having dived in and been taken captive by those sirens, are coming back on board and tempting the other men over. Here are our doubters, our deserters, and our defectors. And Jude's analogy is that we would, we would not just hold each other back. We would not just live a Christian life which is all about numbing our lusts and passions, but that we would fill our hearts, fill our mind's eye and our souls with a more glorious passion, a more glorious affection so that we are not more easily tempted. And that's why in verse 24, he moves on to one of the most glorious, exultant, exuberant, joyful exaltations of Jesus Christ. He knows that he's been telling us, you must be kept. You will be kept, but you must be kept. So here's this long line of people that haven't been kept. Cain, Baal, Balaam, uh, the angels, all these other people, Sodom and Gomorrah, the false teachers of Jude's day, the false teachers of our day, some of our friends, some of our former pastors. We all know them. We know that some people aren't kept, but we want to be kept. And he says, you must keep yourselves, keep one another, and let me tell you about he who will keep you. And as you think about his ability to keep you, that itself will be a force to keep you. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That is that there is a saviour, there is Jesus Christ, who not only wants you to be kept, of course he wants you to be kept. He's been commanding that you be kept this whole time. Don't fall away, don't leave the faith, make it to the last day. But he not only is able to want you to, not only is able to command you to, he himself is able to keep you. However long your backsliding has been, However frequent your sinful lust has been given into, he is able to keep you. He can present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He can present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That word blameless there is the language that they would use of the sacrificial lambs, that they had to be unblemished. They had to be blameless to be fit in, to be in God's presence. And so we are being told by Jude that Jesus is able to make us blameless on that day when we see him. But there's more. It wasn't just spoken about the lamb, sacrificial lambs. This word blameless was used of Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up 
without blemish to God. Same word. 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Same word. That is that Jude is telling us that Jesus will take you to that day when through and through you are as blameless as Jesus. Not just in the courts of heaven. This is not justification. This is glorification. This is exaltation into heaven. This is the, the new creation in its most consummate form, that you will be blameless as Jesus is blameless because Ephesians 5.27 tells us that that is why Jesus gave himself up for the church, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. And if we have any doubt that that would happen, Revelation 19 gives us the prophecy. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Jesus is able to make us, keep us, preserve us, so that on that day we are through and through as righteous as he himself is. You may not feel those three things. He says that you are going to be, he can keep you to be blameless until you're in the presence of his glory with great joy. We know that we, we are not all of those things. We are not blameless. We are not in his presence and we don't have great joy. Maybe we have some, but we're struggling. We're, we're fighting our sin. You may not feel that those things are your present state, but Jude is looking beyond the storm, beyond this life, into eternity and telling you Jesus has a longer plan than you can imagine. And at the end of it, you will be blameless before him and with great, magnificent joy. Therefore, this, this Jesus Christ has, look at verse 25, he is the only God, he is our saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord, be Glory. Jesus has all glory. Glory means the, the weightiness, the sum of his perfections and his attributes. That is his glory. He has majesty. That is his beauty and his royal grandeur. He has dominion, which means that he has the strength and the potency to do all that he wishes. And his authority means that whatever he wishes, he's allowed to do. So that he has all authority, all dominion and authority to carry that out, all majesty and beauty and all glory. His perfections are beautiful. What is possibly able to keep us kept is the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. As you behold him, so you become like him and so the fleeting pleasures of sin lose their sway. The call is to believe on this, the Lord Jesus Christ who is glorious, majestic, powerful, with all authority. In, in this sense, for all those who have fled to Jesus for refuge, Jude says he's our saviour. For those of you who have not fled to the Lord Jesus for refuge, or who have kept yourselves at arm's length, or who have perverted the grace of God to be for sensuality, or who have denied the master of our Lord Jesus, master and Lord, our Jesus Christ, if you, if you are those things in Jesus, Jesus is not your saviour. In fact, verse 5 would be more fitting for you. He is your destroyer. He is your judge. He will be the one who pours out condemnation as he did to every enemy that stands against him and before him. But today is the day of salvation. You are being called to be saved and forgiven this very moment. There is no need to wait any longer. So let's pray.
Holy Spirit, you filled our brother Jude that he might write down this letter to his brothers and sisters, the family of faith, and you've preserved it so that we can now read it and we can now be sitting under its authority, sitting under its exhortation and sitting under its encouragement because every single one of us finds ourselves represented in Jude somewhere. We are either the brothers and sisters that need to contend and that are being exhorted to keep ourselves in the love of God and build ourselves up in the most holy universal faith and, and that's us and we're taking the exhortations. Others of us are, are at the opposite end of the spectrum and we are those ones that have been warned against. We are, we are living in our sin, in our sensuality, in our rebellion, in our, in our iniquity. Lord God, I pray for those people that you would like a brand out of the fire. You would pluck them from where they deserve to be under your judgment and would you give to them undeserved grace? Would you give to them mercy? Father God, for those of us who are, who are unsure, who have been doubting, who have maybe even deserted for a portion of time, that we have run away, that we've joined uh, uh, the, 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 the flanks that are, that, are, that are disappearing from the field, that are, that are turning our back on the fight that the Lord Jesus would have for us, who are deserting our King, for those people who are backsliding or very confused or unsure of where they stand before you, would you give to them, Lord God, a spirit of boldness, a spirit of faith that believes the gospel as as unbelievable as it seems, would they believe the gospel? Would they find themselves under your authority and submitting to what your word would tell them? Lord God, would you preserve them and would you persevere them? Use us for one another. Use the church over all of us and, and would we persevere and preserve one another in the most holy faith? Lord God, we, we submit ourselves to you. We thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and what Jude has written about. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. And everybody said... Amen.